I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 71. And since it is of a above average length, if during the reading you feel the need to sit in order to listen, why, you're welcome to do so. Psalm 71, hear the word of God. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you have I leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning me. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you with a harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. This ends the reading of the word of God. Will you join me in prayer as we ask God's help? O Lord, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. Quicken our hearts so that we might have faith in these words as true and faithful words from you. And help us not simply to be hearers, but doers as well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Over the last year, my wife and I, and particularly my wife, uh, has been dealing with an estate. Uh, my father-in-law passed away a year ago in November. And uh, similar to what we experienced with my mother's passing uh, seven years ago, uh, my in-laws had farmed in the same farm, in the same farmhouse for 65 years. 
And so uh, we are learning the difference between rust and a patina. (laughs) You know what the difference between rust and a patina is? It's probably like a fourfold increase in price. And my mother-in-law still is living in the house, but we went through a couple of auctions, and we've learned a lot about what people value and what they don't value. You know, some things hold their value by never being used. Beanie Babies with their tags still on them, or or G.I. Joe or Barbie dolls still in their boxes. But, you know, the things that are really valuable are the ones that have shown the usage of time, things that have developed a patina. You see, rust and patina are both oxidation, but one adds value while the other one diminishes the value. The psalmist here this morning speaks of a time-worn faith, a faith that has become precious by usage. And I would like us to examine the conditions that lead to this kind of value to faith over a lifetime. Uh, and, and, and the principal thing we'll see is that what makes this faith valuable is its faith based upon God's wonderful works. God's wonderful works. Because his wonderful works show just what kind of God he is. And when we know what kind of God he is, then we can put our faith in him as the faithful God. He's the one who does mighty things for his people. And, and, and the end result of that time-worn faith is praise. The psalm ends in praise, which is the proper expression. That's the proper end. It's the outcome which God intends of his wonderful works. And so let's look together at this lively faith, this, shall we call it an heirloom faith of the psalmist, and ask ourselves, do we have this kind of lively faith? Or do we want this kind of lively faith? Is it something we'll desire? Or perhaps do we need to revive it to bring it out and put it to use again? Psalm 71 will be a good guide to us in that. First of all, let's notice that A lively faith knows it needs God's help. And so the first thing I want us to see from the psalm is the deliverance that's needed. The deliverance that's needed. See, God shows his righteousness by his wonderful works, but we have to turn to him to seek his help in times of need so that he may do wonderful works. We don't, we don't know the specifics of the psalmist situation, but we do, do know he's in something of a dilemma. Uh, we see many things. Uh, we see um, his appeal in verse 1, uh, make haste to help me. There's a situation in which he needs help. Uh, the wicked are uh, uh, pursuing him. There is injustice. There's cruelty, we see in verse uh, 4. Um, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 2, we see that uh, the speeches of enemies and the conspiracy of evildoers uh, is expressed in verse 10. For my enemies speak concerning me, those who watch for my life consult together, and they say God has forsaken him, pursue and seize him, for there is no one to deliver him. It's as if he does not have an ally in whatever circumstance he is, or at least his persecutors don't perceive him to to, uh, 
to have an ally. They believe he is alone in their ill intentions toward him. All this is to simply say, when we are in times of trouble, we must seek God's help. We have to turn to the Lord. And it's the obvious thing, right? You know, we hear the term foxhole prayers. You know, when somebody's in a time of desperate need, they cry out to the Lord. That's the simple, basic word of God, that when we come to times of need, we seek God's help. And so we see the psalmist seeking God's help. God is righteous and will rescue him, uh, as verse 1 uh, tells us, in your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Uh, in uh, in verse uh, 2, we see that God has a listening ear. When the psalmist says, incline your ear to me, it makes me think of Psalm 123 as the hand of a servant to his master. Uh, so uh, the psalmist prays to God uh, that God is a rock of habitation, a rock and a fortress in verse 3. Be to me a rock of refuge. And uh, the word there in the Hebrew actually has the more of the idea of a, a place to live, a place to inhabit, a safe place to be. He is uh, a rock and a fortress at the end of verse 3. That God is a place to, to flee to in times of trouble. Uh, there is an appeal in um, verse 7 to God as a strong refuge, again. In verse 15, the psalmist appeals to God's righteousness. And what's interesting here is you see God's righteousness, that is God's right ways or God's just ways of doing things are known by the psalmist by when God acts. So God does mighty acts. It goes on in verse 15, uh, Tell of your righteous acts of your deeds of salvation, for their number is past my knowledge. Uh, the psalmist recognized the righteousness of God in the way God had acted for him in times of need. Uh, so uh, in verse 18, the might and power of God are appealed to as the psalmist seeks God's help. With the mighty deeds of the Lord, I will come. I'm sorry, that's verse 16. Verse 18, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. So on and on through the psalm, the psalmist not only shows that he's in a dilemma, but the way he speaks of God is he's, he believes God is able and willing to help him. This is Christianity 101. It's, it's when we are in need do we turn to the Lord. Uh, the parable of the righteous widow in Luke 18 it was a lesson in which Jesus made that point. Uh, not that God is like the unjust judge who won't give what the widow asks, but that we are to appeal to God like the widow who kept coming and, and coming because she knew she had a righteous cause. And our righteous cause was with the God who is righteous. Lot, even when God stood before him to announce what he would do to Sodom and Gomorrah, said, will not the Lord of the earth do what is just? So here's a simple question of this deliverance needed. Do we, in faith, cry out to God when we need help, when we are in crisis, when we are in chronic circumstances? Psalm 34, this poor man cried to the Lord. 
Do you cry to the Lord when you are in times of trouble? I know we have to praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. You know, we take pragmatic steps. We do what is prudent. To, if, we're, if we feel ill, we go to the doctor. If, if, um, if we have financial concerns, we might look at our uh, assets or talk to a financial advisor. But these things can easily preempt simply turning to the Lord. At times in a relationship breakup or at times where a job disappointment occurs or when the future is uncertain, do we simply turn to the Lord? The psalmist says God will do right and that we can depend upon him to do right and he will do right by doing mighty things, by doing wonderful works. Uh, Of course, one of those wonderful works is the forgiveness of our sins, that God in Christ died for our sins. We have thanked God for that, and we've relied upon it already in our circumstances. But you see, that is only the, shall we say, the foyer of the Christian life. It's only the entrance to the Christian life. The Christian life is so much more than forgiveness of sins. It's not less than that. But it's believing, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, that not a hair shall fall from our heads without the knowledge of our Heavenly Father, that God is a God of providence. He is sovereign. He is not only our Redeemer, but He's our Creator. And because He's both, nothing can separate us from the love of God, but that God will take care of His own. So, The way Matthew Henry puts it is this, wherever God finds a praying heart, he will be found a prayer-hearing God. Don't neglect to turn to the Lord in times of trouble. Don't neglect to call upon God as the righteous God who will do right by his people and who can be depended upon even in times of trouble. So, That is the deliverance that's needed here. But notice also the duration of the psalmist's trust. The duration of the psalmist's trust. Because this kind of heirloom faith is a lifetime faith. It's not a once upon a time faith. That is, this duration of trust is all our lives long. This is a man of faith who is praying. But look um, in verse 1. Uh, I think probably it's better translated here, in you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. It's a perfect tense of a verb there. It's He's referring to what he's done in the past. I have taken refuge with you in the past, Lord. In uh, verse 2, God is his present help. You are my, um, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 3, uh, be to me a rock of refuge in the present. He's believing God in the present. Look at verse um, uh, 6. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. That's a good Presbyterian verse uh, that, uh, uh, that uh, our children, uh, the children of covenant parents belong to the Lord and they by his grace, his sovereign grace, may, may have a lively faith even before the days that they can speak words. But the psalmist says, I've leaned on you from before my booth, birth. You are he who, and the translation says, took me from my mother's room. That sounds like a obstetrician, but uh, it's, it's really, uh, the sense is, you are he who supported me. Uh, God, 
as it were, took the psalmist by the hand, even from his earliest days. The psalmist can look back and say, from my earliest memories, you have been my faithful God. Verse 8. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day, from sunup to sundown. You see, it's not an iterative faith that just believes God in times of need, but it's a continual leaning and reliance upon the Lord. Verse 14, I will hope continually. Future, going forward, uninterrupted faith. Verse 17, O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So this is this is a, a, a this lively faith is a lifelong faith. It's not something that's just uh, 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 dispensed at the beginning of the Christian life. It's not a been there and done that faith, but rather the psalmist is pointing out how trusting in the Lord with this this weathered this mature faith is one that should stretch from the beginnings to the very ends. Of life, we've read enough about gray hair already this morning. But the the, the reason the Bible says it's a crown of glory is because a, 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 a lifelong faith is a is a glorious faith. You can. Um, my mother worked laboriously, painfully, to sew the holes in my jeans when I was in grade school. Uh, now uh, it would actually increase the value of of those, right? The more distressed a pair of jeans is, the higher the price. And and uh, I suppose um, if you, you just want like a waistband and a couple of pockets, you could pay five hundred dollars for that. <laughs> you can go to Cracker Barrel and you can see all these uh, wooden spoons and sepia tinted photos and memorabilia of the good old days that were not so good. And, and uh, those came right from uh, some Etsy supplier. You can buy stuff that's already pre-aged, right? I keep on a shelf near my, my work desk at home a wooden spoon. And this wooden spoon is chipped and worn. It has served many purposes. Uh, my grandmother made applesauce with it. That was her applesauce spoon. It was a uh, an instrument of parental instruction during my children's toddler years. Just the sight of the spoon. Um, but it's a spoon that must have been stirred and 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 dipped tens of thousands of times over a lifetime. You see, that's what a lively that is what a life worn lively faith looks like. And you know, it, 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 it bears mentioning because it's so easy to only get our faith out like the scrapbook on, on special occasions. Maybe it's holidays or maybe it's passages of life, you know, weddings and, and funerals and other times. But see, the, the psalmist, this is, this, this faith is something that is with him continuously. God is not dependent upon only in moments uh, that are um, of particular importance, but in all moments of life, and in fact, all times of life. What does faith look like to you right now, 
where you are in life. What does it look like? It, it Sure, it doesn't look like it did to you five years ago or if you're that old, 20 years ago or 50 years ago, faith looks different at different times because life changes and life evolves, doesn't it? If you're 50, 60, 70, if you're 10, what does 25-year-old faith look like? Well, in this respect, it is all the same in that it is the faith in the mighty works, the wonderful works of the Lord, the God who doesn't change. But yet the expression of that faith, the, the way in which that faith is applied does change. Getting invited to sit at the right lunch table and how that demands faith of us at 12 years old is very different than facing a doctor's foreboding diagnosis at 70. Moving away, going to college, the first day of school, when you go to kindergarten, marriage, widowhood, all these things are different moments in life in which a lively heirloom faith grows richer, not diminished. Why? Because as this New Testament tells us, Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. You know, the age of the Enlightenment has been called the age of reason. And I think you could rightly call our age the age of doubt. Uh, there is this phenomenon going on. There's the de-churching of America. There are formerly the celebrity Christians who are now saying they no longer believe. And it's become popular. And even one very popular Christian writer from 20 years ago began to monetize his training protocols on how to not be a Christian until somebody called him on the monetization of it. Look, it's very easy to doubt, but a lively faith makes room for doubt. It's a brittle faith that will not entertain doubt. The psalmist is continually saying, how long, O Lord? Uh, the psalmist says, have you forgotten to be gracious, O Lord? Have you turned your face away, Lord? Have you hidden your face from me? A lively faith is one that does not doubt. In fact, a lively, lifelong faith, an heirloom faith, must accommodate doubt. When you, uh, especially you, you younger folks here today, as you move out into the world and you, you find out something new or you don't see the relevance of what you've been taught, well, keep looking, keep thinking, and entertain and express to God your doubts. But he will prove himself by his wonderful works if you rely upon him, if you trust in him. But it 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 also goes the other way. I I think uh, younger people are helped greatly by witnessing the lively faith of older people. I know we, uh, you know, uh, we have tended to be segregated age-wise. I think you know the most Sunday morning is the most divided hour of the week, but it's more so on age than it is even on other things. You know, every six and a half years, the worship of the church has to be reinvented and the music of the church has to be replaced. And um, I uh, not completely uh, uh, ironically mentioned the excommunication of children that happens in worship in many churches. <laughs> Halfway through, the children are sent out uh, to be in a room together and they get used to being with people their own age. And I mean, I... 
I thought it was criminal when I was a child how much my parents made me hang around with older people. I remember rolling off a porch in my little white shirt and tie as we were waiting to visit with, visiting is what we called it on Sunday afternoons. Uh, my, um, my parents let my 16-year-old brother drive my other brother and me to church on Sunday mornings if we would take a bulletin by the nursing home on the way back home from church. And so uh, we would walk in, we would spread out, you know, be efficient. All three of us didn't need to go into any one uh, residence room, and we would quietly tiptoe in and lay the bulletin quietly on a on a on a on a nightstand or something while the resident slept or simply had their eyes closed, and we would quietly tiptoe back out and. We would get back home, and my mother would say, well, Jesus, did you see all the people that I told you to see? We said, oh, we saw them. And my mother, you know, being a good attorney, um, at least as good as any mother is, said, did you talk to them? Oh, no, they were asleep. Well, wake them up. It's like, so forced interaction with older people is like the, you know, which something I'm deeply, deeply grateful for today. You may assume... Children don't want to hang around with you, but don't give in. And you may assume, children, that older people don't want to hang around with you. Just keep pressing in. Just bug them to death. Just make yourself make yourself obvious to them. I knew of one church that had a wonderful practice whenever the children went through catechism class or communicants class. They had to interview an older person and ask them about what their life of faith had been like. And even if you're not asked, if you're older, offer. <laughs> Be ready. I think I've told this story before. Uh, when my mother was wheelchair-bound, living in her home, she had two young women taking care of her. They were in their early 70s. <laughs> they were sisters, and they would come sit with her and, you know, different times of the day. And the last time I left my mother's house after she passed, as I was getting ready to back out of the driveway, this woman pulled up. And it was one of the sisters. And she said, I just want to tell you how I grew closer to the Lord taking care of your mother. My mother had nothing to do but pray and wait for the phone to ring for her kids and grandkids to call her. But when these sisters came in, she would hold them by the hand and pray before they ate. She would ask them about their life with the Lord and Even these sisters who were older than I am and older than most of us here, who perhaps had become accustomed to a certain way of embracing their faith, they were enlivened by the lively faith of somebody who was ahead. Don't underestimate the need of others to depend upon you to know what faith looks like. If you're 25, you're helping somebody who's 15 see what 25-year-old faith looks like. If you're 35, if you're 55, you will be a reminder, as verse 18 says, of God's righteousness. And so uh, that brings us to the last thing I would like us to see. It's not just the deliverance needed that the psalmist mentions, and not just the duration of trust, but the last thing I'd like us to see is his determination to praise. Because God's wonderful works are so that he might be praised and worshipped. 
Look at verse 14. I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts. God knows what his righteous acts are, but he does wonderful things. He does his wonderful works so that we might praise him for them. Verse 16, with the mighty deeds of the Lord, God, I will come. He's describing here entering into the sanctuary. Uh, I will remind them, that is the assembly of believers, I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. He's the Holy One of Israel. O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. You see, there's no retirement date for praising the wonderful works of the Lord, so that even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. When? Until when? When can God forsake me? (laughs) Well, never. But it says, until I proclaim your might to another generation. Your power to all those to come. The psalmist is determined to praise God for his wonderful works. What are those wonderful works? Well, no doubt, in the psalmist's mind, these include the, the, the wonders in Egypt that showed God's greatness over Pharaoh, and particularly the crossing of the sea and the freedom from slavery, from bondage uh, in Egypt, but all his wondrous works as they crossed through the wilderness, uh, God's wondrous works in establishing him as a nation and raising him up on the land flowing with milk and honey and, and giving them a king who was a king after God's own heart, David himself. But God's mighty works in the Old Testament did not end with the Old Testament. In fact, you might have picked up the phrase, uh, you have done great things. It sounds very much like something Mary said in her prayer in Luke chapter 1. The Lord has done great things. You see, Mary was anticipating the wonderful works of the Lord, which were beginning to now take place in Jesus Christ. And Acts chapter 2, after Jesus has been crucified and raised and and ascended on high, we're told what Peter said to all those who were gathered there from all the nations. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter there testifies to the wonders and signs, or as theologian um, Herman Bovink has characterized them or described them, the wonderful works of God. Here's what, here's what Bob Inc. says about this idea of God's wonderful works. Herein lies the thought that the Christian religion does not exist merely in words, in a doctrine, but that it is a work of God in word and fact, which was accomplished in the past, is being worked out in the present, and will be fulfilled in the future. 
He continues, the content of the Christian faith is not a scientific theory nor a philosophical formula of an explanation of the world, but a recognition and confession of the wonderful works of God, which have been wrought through the ages, cover the whole world, and await their fulfillment in the new heaven and the new earth. God's wonderful works find their climax. In fact, they find all their meaning in what God did in Christ. Go back and reread this psalm on the lips of Jesus. He is the one who was surrounded. Psalm 22 says like, like bulls surrounding him. And they taunted him, just as the words of Psalm 71 say. And they taunt, the psalmist is taunted in Psalm 22. And what did they say in Matthew's gospel when Jesus was up on the cross? Uh, Let God save him. And God did. They thought he was alone, but God saved him. And what did Christ do when he was delivered from death? Hebrews 2 tells us, you know who the worship leader is in every Christian worship service? It's the risen Christ. Hebrews 2, quoting Psalm 22, I will tell of your name in the congregation in the midst of the assembly, I would sing your praise. The risen Christ, by the Spirit, stands in our midst, testifying to God saving him. And his testimony is the one that saves us. Because by faith in God's wonderful works in and through Christ, by union with Christ, by faith, Christ's salvation is our salvation. And so the greatest worshiper who ever and ever lives, Christ himself, testifies to us of the wonderful works of God which now are applied to us by the Spirit. The wonderful works of God did not end with the Old Test with the New Testament, but they continue as the Holy Spirit applies the saving work of Christ to our lives. So every time we look back up at what God has done in Christ, we have reason for praise. So the deliverance that's needed, simply cry out to the Lord in times of need. The duration of trust. Ask, what does, my, what does faith look like as I travel through life? My 12-year-old faith, my 25-year-old faith, my 80-year-old faith. What does it look like? How can I trust in the Lord in such a way now that is particular and unique to my circumstance in life? And as we do that, it will be praiseworthy. It will be a determination to praise, not just our own giving of praise to God, but rather to evoke from generations to come God's praise. One of the greatest testimonies of such a lively faith is Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna. Uh, He was uh, ordained by John the Apostle, one of the last living church leaders who knew the apostles. And... uh, When he was just 35 years old, his mentor, Ignatius, passed through where Polycarp was in Smyrna on his way to be martyred in Rome. So he knew what martyrdom looked like. At the age of 86, quietly and faithfully serving the Lord, all those many years, he was seized for persecution because he refused to burn incense 
to the emperor. And it's a particularly cruel martyrdom that he experienced. You can read about it in such places as Fox's Book of Martyrs. But here's what Polycarp answered when he was asked, when he was appealed to just simply burn the incense. Here's what he said. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I then blaspheme my, my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant to the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And then he addressed the Lord, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this honor so that in the company of the martyrs I may share the cup of Christ. Not only does this psalm teach us that God has done us no wrong, but that he has done wonderful works, which can elicit a lifetime faith that will result in his praise, not only from us, but from those who witness our faith as well. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord, give us this kind of faith. Help us to see through our circumstances where you are at work. Help us to believe that the mighty works, the wonderful works you have done in and through your Son are our salvation and our sustenance and our life. And Lord, help us to be mindful of those who need such a lively faith so that we might be portents, we might be examples, that we might be... um, those to whom others may look to know what trusting you looks like. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.